So we're going to turn to Romans 7, which is our uh, the next passage in our series in the book of Romans. We're going to look at the first 13 verses from Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Nice little exposition of marriage law there. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse seven, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet it, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would would have not known what it is to covet. Excuse me. If the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin or in the NASB there, it says that sin might be shown to be utterly sinful and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So here's a wonderful exposition once again of the law of God. We have a wonderful uh, look into a, a nice detailed and concise summary of marriage law, okay, which was preached in Leviticus, also upheld by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Um, So again, just right there is an object lesson that um, the new covenant believer ought to exposit and study and understand Old Testament law for it gives us the structure for how to live our lives. And so the Jews are a massive part of the audience of the first century church. They comprise a huge portion of believers in the church in a way that we don't have today in our context. None of us, as far as I know, except by show of hands, were raised under um, Mosaic law or Jewish tradition, as far as I can tell. And so when we look back through the Old Testament and we're coming as, you know, believers in Christ, it's so tempting and we've seen this in the church and and we're going to look more in detail at this, but we wonder, did the Old Testament lead the Jews astray? Did the Old Testament mislead them about who God was, what God's expectations were. Likewise, do those who study and preach the Old Testament 
Are they led astray by its commands? Are they led down some divergent path that, that, that doesn't get you to the gospel of Christ? When you look at all of this talk of dying to the law and living to the spirit, <clears throat> it can appear as though, without careful inspection, that essentially it was all for nothing, our Jewish background. It was all for naught. It was all just sort of God's experiment, his religious experiment. And, and now that that experiment has you know, failed or passed away, we can move on to the real deal, which is Christ. If you're a Jew, <clears throat> that would have been especially tempting to believe, especially if you were being called to come to Christ. This is why Christ was a stumbling block um, to the Jews. Because without careful inspection, it could be shown that Christ was a departure and Paul was accused of, of abandoning the Old Testament when he preached Christ. Paul was accused of being, quote unquote, an antinomian, which means being against the law. And uh, many Christians today are called antinomians for doing what we're doing right now. But a careful study of God's law is so important for living as a Christian. And, and here again, he fleshes out the character and the nature of the law and our relationship to it. How many times have we done this in Romans already? This is probably the third or fourth sermon, at least in, in seven chapters, that we really dive into the law and its relationship to the Christian. <clears throat> and if you think that's a little bit too much, well, number one, you have a problem with the writer of the Bible, not me. But if you think it's over the top in general, then I think maybe you have underestimated the moral chaos that has resulted from pushing the law aside, from misunderstanding it. And I'm not just pointing a finger at the culture. I'm not just pointing a finger at the culture. I'm saying inside the church, we have so great a moral spectrum of what, quote unquote, fits inside the church. This is why Christians can stand up when somebody <clears throat> gives a very simple explanation of God's design for men and women. You'll find somebody who identifies as a Christian stand up and say, you don't speak for all Christians. You're simply pulling from the Bible. But this, the moral spectrum that we see now is a direct result of rejecting and doing exactly what Paul says not to do here in verse 7. <clears throat> is the law sin? By no means. So that mistake right there has caused such deep, deep confusion. And I'm telling you, here's what's so wonderful when you teach the law. And this is just from personal experience. And I've been trying to teach our kids the law of God, the Ten Commandments. I was going to test win on what number of covetousness was. Do you remember? If you remember, just tell me. But the law is so helpful. It's so clear when I teach my kids the law and then we go through the Old Testament passages when we look at a king who is good versus a king that is bad we we can discern what is bad about a king which commandments did he break we looked at Nebuchadnezzar which commandments did he break we know exactly which ones put him in the category of evil in the sight of God and likewise when you see a good king it says he walked in the ways of his father David which was to obey the law so it brings such clarity. It's so simple, and it should be embraced by the church. But we're not quite there yet, but that's just setting the stage for why this is so important and why I believe as the church today, um, we need to study these passages very seriously and take a hard look at ourselves and our lives and our families and say, am I trying to basically fly 
you know, by visual flight rules. If you're a pilot, I took ground school when I was a kid and they say you always trust your instruments because the, the, for, the gravitational forces when you're in an aircraft can make you feel like you're right side up when you're upside down. And if you're in fog, you can't tell what's sky and what's ground. And if you're feeling right side up, pulling up is gonna push you into the ground. And so they, the first rule of ground school, if you're a pilot, is always trust your instruments. Well, this is our instrument. So whatever the ways that we feel, we ought not to trust those ways unless they line up with our instrument. And that's gonna protect us from crash landing into the ground, thinking we're going Godward and instead we're going earthward. Um, I just made that phrase up, but um, take it out what you will. So um, Christian faith, here's our first heading, the first three verses. Christian faith saves us from the law's jurisdiction to condemn. Christian faith saves us from the law's jurisdiction to condemn. I'm speaking to those who know the law. So this is in particular to Jews who are not quite grasping what, what happens to all of my Jewish heritage when I come to Christ. What do I do with all that? All of this old and, um, and, and new talk, especially for the Jew, is, is saying, I don't know if I can trust this Jesus because I believed that I was serving God with my family through the law. And they, and they earnestly believed in what they were doing. A faithful Jew would earnestly participate in lawful worship, believing that he was serving and loving the Lord God. And so when it comes to this, you need to die to the law. They're going, I don't know how that is supposed to work. But the problem is, and, and, and what the law was meant to demonstrate was that it did not have the power to make you righteous before God. If there's one thing you remember from today, it's that the law does not have the power to make you righteous before God, such that when you stand before him, you'll be received into heaven. The law does not have the power to do that. Let's just put that right on the table. For salvation, the law has a certain jurisdiction. And I think in the New American Standard, it actually uses that phrase. Um, but I don't know if it appears here in the ESV. That is, it has a certain realm of authority. And when you submit yourself to the authority of the law as your means of righteousness before God, the law's jurisdiction is to condemn you. <clears throat> it reveals your sin. It reveals where you have, um, have rebelled against God. Right? When Josiah opened up the law, it revealed how far they had strayed. The law's jurisdiction was perfectly in place in Josiah's life. And if you're a Jew, your relationship to this law was covenantal. God had given his law through Moses as a covenant. He had given his promises to Abraham through a covenant. And when they observed the law, they saw it as a marriage. They took it as seriously as you take your marriage today. It was, it was everything. And to break a covenant with God, if you were a genuine believer, was to reject God. And so when they looked at the law as a spouse that they were married to, as a covenantal spouse, they believed that this was adulterous to embrace Christ. Jews, many Jews genuinely believed that it would be like adultery. It would be like cheating on, in the purity of the law, it would be cheating on God to go to this Messiah who did not demand lawful protection for, um, 
lawful fulfillment for salvation. And again, as I said, Paul was accused of being antinomian because he preached that Christ was the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. But it's only in a sense of its jurisdiction, which is its assigned place of duty. So the Jew was, was being told here to understand the law as having a, a role to play, a certain jurisdiction beyond which it had no power. It did not have power to make you righteous before God. Ezekiel 36 even promised that the law on tablets could not make us righteous, but the law written on our hearts and with the Holy Spirit could make us righteous. So even in the Old Testament law in the prophets, there's a promise that the written law was not the, the end game for righteousness in God. And so the Jews would feel lawless by receiving Christ's fulfillment on their behalf because they believed that they personally needed to fulfill the law to please God. But when Christ comes, he said, I've come to fulfill it. And so when you receive Jesus' fulfillment on your behalf, for a Jew, they would feel unfaithful to God. It would be like going behind their spouse to be with another. But Paul says, if you stay married to the law in that way, you're dead. You're going to be condemned. You don't want to stay in that bond or the perceived covenant that you have with the law. It says that you need to die. And so he goes into marriage law for a married woman is bound to her by law to her husband while he believes. So Paul's demonstrating here that he takes the law very seriously. That he takes living under the law very seriously. He's showing them the law and how it teaches us about marriage is right. And he uses this analogy to demonstrate the lawfulness of receiving Christ. He says, you're under the jurisdiction of your marriage, right? As long as your spouse is alive, you're under the covenant of that marriage. Paul says, if, you're, if your spouse dies, you are free to marry another spouse. And that's good if, if that's what you would have. If that's not, you can go on in signalness, but you are lawfully permitted to marry another and she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. So as long as that covenant is alive, then you're going to be an adulteress if you leave it. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So he takes this picture of marriage and he says in verse four, likewise, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You are like the spouse, both dying and being freed through a death to join in a new covenant. You need to die to your covenant um, bond with the law because it will not save you. And what he's saying is when you are joined to Christ to the death, and we talked about that death last week and the week before, right? When you come to Jesus, you're giving your life up. You're saying, I, 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 I have no hope but to die. My body is a slave to sin, I must die. And now he's taking that principle and applying it in marriage terms to your unity with Christ. And he's saying that if you join yourself with Christ, if you're a Jew, if you're a Gentile, he's saying it's lawful. Do you see that? For the Jew to embrace Christ, it is a lawful, by mosaic standards, by lawful standards, it is a lawful transition. In fact, it's demanded. The law demands that you receive Christ. Because of what he is. He, remember, he came as the word of God. 
He didn't come as a disembodied spirit. He came as the perfect embodiment of the law of God. And so, in fact, not only is it lawful to embrace Christ, it's not unlawful to, but it is demanded. The law demands that we receive Jesus Christ. By God's own standards, the Jew could embrace Jesus Christ and perfectly keep that aspect of the law. And so in Christ, we are no longer bound to the terms of the law. Hear this, for salvation. For salvation, because the jurisdiction of the law renders us in, um, unqualified for salvation, right? That's what the law does. And we know that. We've been over that. And so we're, not, we're, we're saying we are, we are free from the terms of the law, from the jurisdiction of the law's condemnation. That's what um, chapter 8 starts with. Because strictly speaking, the law serves to identify our sin and to guide us and to restrain us in the way of righteousness. So the Christian faith, number one, saves us from the law's jurisdiction to condemn by, through death. We only escape that jurisdiction through death. Um, there's a, I'll get to that in a minute. And so our, our new bond, verses four to six, our new bond to Christ produces in us what the law could not do. You may have heard this from other theologians. I'm not the inventor of that concept. Well, neither are they. The Bible is. But um, the law could not produce in you the fruit of faithfulness to God. The law could not do that. The law does not go and indwell you and create in you something new. The law restrains the things that are already there and guides the things that are already there, but it does not produce in you anything new. It gives light, but it does not give the spirit. And so starting in verse four, it says you need to die to the law and you need to be joined with Christ to another, to your new spouse. Remember, Jesus is called the bridegroom and we are called the bride. It is a marriage. We are married to the bridegroom and there will be a marriage feast. The marriage supper of the lamb is to come and we will be finally fully, really joined to our bridegroom. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So before Christ, what did the law produce in you? Or what was inside of you? It was your passions aroused by the law and they were bearing fruit for death. We looked at that last week. What is the reward of living a sinful life? It's death. And so our passions are leading us down that path of fruit to death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. Again, and we're going to deal with this misunderstanding more fully, but what he's saying is the law did not produce in you the fruit of obedience. All it did was describe your rebellion. It described your rebellion and it it highlighted it. And the only way to escape from this judgment was to die. I don't know if you've ever seen Spy Game. I don't often reference movies, but this, I, I, I love that movie. And the scene that is so powerful there that, that I'm thinking about, and it's a poignant scene when you're watching it. Brad Pitt, who's in a high security, I think, communist prison, he takes a drug that basically stops his heart. He has a seizure and stops. And they put him on a stretcher and they roll him out into a, an ambulance out of the prison. And then basically like this super elite team, they take over the ambulance and they steal them. And then they bring them back to life. 
like I guess they CPR or whatever they do or paddles and they they restart his heart. And that's I thought that was a great picture because in the prison, you're not getting out of a communist jail on good behavior. You're going to rot in there. So the only way they could get this secret agent out was to fake his own death or to actually, in that case, to kill him. His heart had to stop. And then he got out and then he was revived and then he was, you know, he became a secret agent. So that's not, that's where the analogy ends. Um, and Robert Redford sort of is, is the guy who got him out. So, but we are joined with Christ in his death to escape the imprisonment of the law, the condemnation of the law. And we as a body are held together in Christ and through him, we bear fruit. Remember John 15, Jesus said, abide in me as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Your fruitfulness to God only happens when you are joined through death into the body of Christ where he is raised. The Christian is a fruitful human the way that we were designed. Uh, designed. And so when he says sin was aroused by the law and, and it basically produced in us sin, and so but now through death, we serve in the spirit. And again, and that's a covenantal promise. Ezekiel 36 said, I will put my spirit in them so that they will walk in my statutes. That's why Acts chapter 2 is so exciting. It's the fulfillment of that Ezekiel 36 promise. It's the Holy Spirit rushing into the church for the first time. Giving the power to the church to live for God, to bear fruit for him, and to go out and to subdue the earth uh, in kingdom terms. And so this... This word serve is not just a casual, um, you know, I'm, I wonder what I'm doing. At I'm serving at church this weekend and, oh, but if I'm sick, you know, maybe I call in and get somebody to help me out. This word serve is actually the verb form of doulos, which is the word slave. We are either enslaved to the law or we are enslaved and, and, and by which I mean enslaved to sin because of the law's highlighting of it, or we are a slave to God through the spirit. And we looked at that in Romans 6, that we become a slave to righteousness. And this verb is, is the key to what Paul is saying, is that the law as a means by which we serve God, we must die to. Jeremiah says that our, our, our greatest works are like filthy rags before the Lord. So we need to abandon our good works and, and adopt Christ's good works on our behalf. That is serving in the spirit. But does this render the law invalid? In Christ, we die to the law as a means of serving God in terms of salvation in a way that pleases him. But then what does the law do? My last heading here is that the law shines against sin. So Paul says, okay, if you want to look at that and say we bear fruit to God through the spirit, Remember, it's the law written on our hearts. It's not the law doesn't go out the window. It's the law written on our hearts. And so we might think at that point, well, the law is not our friend. Because we see that the law arouses sin. So we might think, oh, the law is not our friend. The law is against us. It is if you're outside of Christ. The law of God is a very serious thing to look at if you have no hope, if you have no justification in Christ. But there's a reason why Paul keeps dealing with these potential misunderstandings of salvation in the Old Covenant. Because we look at the Older Covenant where God manifested his rule through a nation. 
He manifested the rule of his kingdom through a nation at that time. And they were governed by the Mosaic law. They were governed by what's called a judicial law, which is the court systems and how to go through a trial. They had a dietary law. They had a, um, a worship law, ceremonial law. And we think, well, those things are all over now. Those are all done with now. And, and we misunderstand the fact that, so that's called a theocracy, that, that, that manifestation of God's rule. And because God's rule through that one nation has, it hasn't passed on, it has actually expanded. He has made the whole body of Christ, um, First Peter says, a, a holy nation. So his rule and reign is still manifest through a nation, but it's not the nation of geopolitical Israel. It's the nation of God's people, and we are a multinational people. We are all over the earth. There's, there's nowhere where the, where the Christian witness it, um, has not permeated in some fashion. And so God's old manifestation has not passed away. It has expanded. And so with it, the use of the law should not be seen as merely passing away. And I'm gonna get. I'm gonna give you a little bit more specifics to this because I know it's like okay. There's questions that just pop up. I'm sure you've been asked. I want to show you briefly four views of the law that I've seen, and what view we should have in light of Paul's exhortation here. Number one, the law is good, but it's an it's an historic relic. It wasn't wrong, but essentially God's law was accommodating sort of a primitive religious people, and it regulated them, but we've grown and, and, and grown up as a species morally and religiously. I think you can understand why that's not necessarily true. Um, God's people were not religiously primitive in any way. They were the most advanced in the world in terms of morality and um, societal structure. Number two, the law was good, but it was purely covenantal. It was purely between God and Israel. And since that exclusive relationship has um, d- um, dissolved or the exclusivity of that relationship is dissolved, then this, then the contract that governed it is also passed away with it. So that's another view that the law is good, but it's dissolved along with God's exclusivity with Israel. Number three, the law is good, but we should only follow or observe any part of it that the new Testament explicitly repeats or endorses. And then number four, which is the worst view, is that the law is bad because it condemns people. And we can't keep it anyway. And the new covenant is grace. That's the worst view of the law. So run from that. If that's in your heart or in in your circles, run from that. That's a bad view of the law because Paul says, is the law sin? What shall we say? Is the law sin because it arouses sin in us? No. No. By no means, for if it had not been from the law, I would not have known sin. And then he gives this really interesting um, human perspective of the law. And I find this fascinating. So enter this with Paul. I would not have known sin if it weren't for the law. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of um of covetousness for apart from the law sin lies dead i was once alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin came alive and i died so again this is a this is a tear down from the, the theological reality of the law 
He's saying, from my perspective, I was doing great until the law came along. That's called an exposition of self-awareness. His self-awareness level without the law was low. He had no idea what was going on in his heart. He was doing great. You know, it's like if you're going through a, a zone and you don't know the speed limit, it's a good feeling because you can honestly tell the police officer if you're pulled over, I didn't know. And at least your conscience can be clear. You still may get a ticket because the law is still there, by the way. But just because you don't know doesn't mean you're not breaking it. And Paul says, when the law, he said, I was alive. I felt great. I felt religiously pure. Have you seen that in our culture? The purest, most morally demanding people are those who are most lawless. Because there's an ideal in their minds that they're achieving perfectly. They are alive. And when the law comes, sin lives and they die. And isn't that exactly the call of the gospel? We need to die. You need to die to be in Christ. There is no shortcut. There's no back door into the Christian faith. It has to be through laying your life down with Christ and saying, you need to be my life. I like, I like this idea. So is the law sinful? No, it highlights that we are sinful. Sin is bad. And when something good comes along, sin rises to the occasion. Have you ever built a sandcastle around a three-year-old boy? They can be playing happily at the beach, splashing in the water, causing no trouble. But then you go to build a sandcastle that you, that, you know, for a sandcastle competition and the judges are going to come and it's got to be done right. That boy sees it and he's not come up to help. He's going to come up and stomp it to the ground. <laughs> the the sandcastle is like the law. And the little boy's desire is like the sin awakened by the law. Oh, I didn't realize there was something destructive I could do. Let me come and help. <laughs> now, I love young boys and young girls. And they their, their contribution to sandcastles is truly unique and should be celebrated and cherished. And this is in no way dismissing that. But you see the analogy there. That's like us as grown-ups, right? We think we're doing great until temptation comes along. Or we think we're doing great un, un, until, the, you know, the preacher hits a certain passage and suddenly we're crushed. And it's like, how did he know that was going on in my heart? How did he know that sin was somewhere there? I felt great coming to church this morning. And now I've got this sin to deal with. When I met the law, I died, Paul says. But the law didn't kill me. Sin did. Sin did. The effect of the law is meant to be a very specific thing here. It's meant to show the sinfulness of sin. And so this is, this is where I want to pull the car into the garage a little bit here. The moral chaos that we are seeing in a, in, as a nation in the highest branches of the legislature putting into law moral chaos. They're inscribing it in law. They're not just doing it there. They're doing it in, in uh, schools. They're doing it in therapy practices. They're doing it in the doctor's office. They're doing it in preschools. They're doing it in universities. And they're doing it in the church. Man, we are seeing a, we're seeing a total moral collapse. And, and, I'm, and I'm not a... 
a, a bench bashing preacher to say, you know, they're all going to hell and, and we have, you know, we're the pure ones. That is not it. This is a reflection on ourselves. That the, the moral caving in that is taking place is because we don't recognize that sin is truly sinful. When the light of the law goes dim, sin begins to look like a cute, fuzzy puppy. We begin to rationalize it. We begin to let it come a bit closer. We begin to fraternize with it. We begin to uh, justify it. We begin to relativize it. Well, it's not like that. It's not as bad as it used to be. I heard someone, you know, once tell me that sodomy was only really sinful because they wanted to do it in groups. And so now in our, in our modern times where, where we can do it in a more civilized fashion that more resembles a man and a woman, then it can be accepted. This is, that is, and that's not to criticize a person who thinks that, that's to say they've lost the light of the law. That, that they could actually look at something so degrading and in any way say that it has a place in a human being's life, let alone a Christian's. Remember, sin is bad for everybody. Sin is not good, but God tests us by taking something good away from us. Everything that is sinful, Old and New Testament combined, is bad for you. It will result in death, and it alienates you from God. Full stop. And so in the church, we sometimes don't see the ugly, destructive, horrible nature, the utter sinfulness of sin. And it begins to creep in. And we begin to celebrate it. We begin to legitimize it. We begin to whisper about it. Um, one past, one major pastor in the, in the United States said, we should whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we should shout about what the Bible shouts about. The Bible whispers about sexual sin. It's not, it's not a really big thing in the Bible. But the Bible shouts about materialism and hypocrisy. And it's like, so, the, so we, should, we should stop being so worried about sexual degradation and we should worry more about hypocrisy and greed. Now, I'm not putting those two against each other. We should be very concerned for materialism and selfishness and greed. And we should be very concerned about sexual degradation. It's all destructive. Further, Galatians 3.24 says the law has become a tutor, a teacher, an assistant to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. No one's saying the law justifies you before God, but the law is a tutor. It's a teacher that leads you to the Messiah. And when you get to the Messiah, you're justified despite everything that the law highlighted about your life. And so when we, when we dismiss the law, when we say we don't need that tutor anymore, when we put it away, we begin to approve and sanction sin, and we are too proud to let the law shine again. We become too proud. A generation later doesn't even recognize sin as sin. What happens to the generation after us who weren't taught the law like we were? They are lost. And we are the ones that took away the teacher that the Bible says leads them to Christ. Do you think you can do a better job at leading people to Christ than God's law? I can't. I can't. 
And I have to ask, have you ever wondered why the public is less interested than they ever have been in the Christian church? It's because they don't believe that they have anything to repent of. And it's not because this generation is more sinful than last generation. It's because the public witness of God's righteousness has been removed. The tutor has been removed. As I said, in the public sphere, people say, oh, the church has no place in the state. When the state begins to legislate evil, it hurts the people because they don't recognize where they have fallen from God. They don't recognize where they have fled from God. We remove the law and then we wonder why no one comes to Christ because the tutor is gone. We've believed in the lie that we shouldn't highlight people's sin because they already know. The fact is they don't. They don't know. And it doesn't mean that you go and you yell at everybody about every wrong thing you can think of that they're doing. We don't preach in a Hippocratic, um, in a way that's um, hypocrisy. We, we preach in a way that is loving. The law reaches out and says, look, you are separated from God and you need Christ. You need to be justified by Christ. And they don't know. Honest to goodness, watch videos with Ray Comfort. People have no idea what God demands of them. And that's a scary thought because you interview the average person and they say, yeah, I really hope that I, you know, I, I want to meet God. I want to be in heaven. Well, do you know what God demands of you to get there? No idea. Well, how are they going to get there? Ray Comfort does an awesome job going through the commandments and saying, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Yes. And then you add, and I've done them too. But in Christ, I, all of that has been washed away. I am in him and I am forgiven. So the, the law is not an impediment to the gospel. It is an accelerant to the gospel. It's an accelerant. It drives people to their need. It drives them to their knees before God. And there is no other way. Remember, it is easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into heaven. Why? Because the rich man feels no need. They cannot humble themselves and enter through that eye, through that narrow gate. We need to make people small and God big so that we can get inside. When we are too big for the entrance, we don't get in. And that's what Paul says. Before the law, I was a big dude. I was an important guy. I was a religious, top-notch elite. And when we don't have the law, we, our generation, our churches are lost in a sea, listen to this, of self-affirmation. That is what our world is suffering from most right now. It is self-affirmation. It is self-justification. We have become our own gods and we have given ourselves the stamp of approval. That's why we're lost. Because we have lost the true God who shows us the path of righteousness. We need to pull people from this drifting, formless sea of self-affirmation. So he says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Don't forget that. It is good. Now, I have to address this because you're going to have this question lingering in your head and maybe you feel embarrassed asking it or someone's going to ask you if you talk about the law up here and say, well, don't you eat shellfish and wear mixed clothing fabric? I have to get this out there. And you don't stone adulteresses. That's right. So you don't really believe in the law of God because you eat shellfish. 
What do you say to that? Does anyone have a quick answer? Here's the answer. Number one, when Peter had a vision, God showed him the purpose of the dietary laws. It was to separate Israel in holiness and the food represented the uncleanness of people who did not fear the Lord and the cleanness of people who did, that God had cleaned his people. By the way, all of the dietary things in the law of God are very good for you. Like read the maker's diet. If you want to find out the value of the diet that God gives people Israel. Now God made it, he, he demoralized it. So, so he said to Peter, when the dietary vision happened, he said, oh, you can go to that Roman's house, which would have previously been unclean for you. So there's your answer to the dietary. It's explicitly completed and fulfilled its role. Mixed fabric, same thing. It had to do with worship. It had to do with mixing clean and unclean, especially in the priestly garments, who were the mediators of that covenant. They mediated worship for the people of God. Who's our mediator now? Jesus Christ. What kind of garments are we told that we are given in the new covenant? White garments, righteous garments, Christ's garments. So explicitly, and those are the two you're going to get the most often. And you can say that the New Testament does not leave us clueless about how the law should be applied. But would you believe me if that if you comb through the Old Testament, and this is just a bit of an application, the law has wisdom and uses for things like the Derek Chauvin police trial. Very important applications to understand what is just and what is unjust about the Derek Chauvin and um, a name, well, the name that it's connected with would be uh, George Floyd, which, which turned our world upside down about a year ago. The Old Testament has wisdom for dealing with that. Did you know that? Like important clutter removing wisdom. The Old Testament law has wisdom and application for COVID-19 and how to deal with it. Did you know that? Between doctors and practitioners and all the rest. The, the, the scriptures give wisdom for state church relationship. That's an important one right now. It gives wisdom for divorce and remarriage, child rearing and discipline and romance. It has everything. The law is so useful. And I am a baby in understanding how the law applies to the broader sphere of life. I am a baby. I admit that. But I am so thrilled about my life and in terms of an opportunity to apply what God has given us through the ages and put it into practice. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, which people say was the new law, Jesus said, the one who teaches these things will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He said, the one who relaxes any of these laws will be called least, and the one who teaches them will be called great. And in the same sentence, he said, I came to fulfill the law, but I fulfilled it so that you could teach it and obey it and put it into practice. <clears throat> that, is the, that is the greatest challenge of the Christian life. How do we apply God's word? If you want to figure out how to do good works, that is one way to study and to sharpen your mind and to be made useful to God. And so finally, delight in where the law leads you. It leads you to Christ to find full justification. But then it continues as a light to our path by which we expand the kingdom of God and we expand the reign of Christ through the application of the law. 
The reign of Christ is not some mystical detached thing. The reign of Christ is put into practice through his nation by wisdom and applying the law of God. And remember this, the law is not bad. The truest way to love your neighbor, Jesus said, was to apply the law to your life and to theirs. He said, if you want to summarize the law and the prophets, you can do it like this. Love God and love your neighbor. If you want to learn to love your neighbor, put the law into practice in your life and practice it with all joy and with all assurance in God that you're not doing it to earn salvation. That's already been done in Jesus Christ. We do it to love him and we do it to love our neighbors. And so the law is good and righteous and the the commandment is holy. What a blessing it is. And as a church, I, I hope that we can grow in learning some of those specifics from the law and walking through real life circumstances and how God's law can guide us through them. Um, you'll be amazed at the wisdom embedded in God's word. You'll be amazed. I mean, I've had my eyes just opened in so many amazing ways by seeing Leviticus pulled out and taught and laid across really difficult, complex situations in fit, families or churches or the culture. Uh, incredible. So uh, let's pray and we're going to close with one short hymn.